She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am here today with a new special guest for you listeners, my friend Elise Ballard. Hi, Sarah. So nice to be here. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you here. Elise is here in LA like I am, and we both share a deep love of our kitty cats together, amongst other things. Elise, what should the audience know about you? Who are you? Well, I am an author. I wrote a book called Epiphany. Um, I interviewed people about their greatest epiphanies in life. It's a really good book, audience. It's really good. Thank you. (laughs) So that led me on the trajectory. I started my career as an actress and a filmmaker. And one of my film ideas ended up becoming a book for Random House. And that's why that book exists. And I still had filmed as many of the interviews as I could that live on my website, um, EliseBallard.com and EpiphanyChannel.com. I tell you that because it's led me to write other projects. One of the things I'm working on right now is a story that I stumbled upon through my family. I found out that my great-grandmother, my dad's grandmother, was a broad you should know about. Yes. You were telling me about your great-grandmother and I was like, okay, stop. I think you need to tell this on my podcast. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, it's a hidden history. No one had mentioned it to me really until I was in my late 20s. And it didn't come from my parents. It came from my great uncle and great aunt. And I was spending time with them. And my family's originally from New Orleans. So I was in Bay St. Louis, which is just an hour outside of New Orleans with them. And they mentioned that my great-grandmother was one of the first women surgeons in Louisiana. And as I've done research, she probably was one of the first in the South, as were the other women that she teamed up with. So that's the story I'm going to... I found out about my late 20s and I was like, what? I've never heard of this. I was going to research more and write about it for my family just so Mm -hmm. that we had the history recorded because of course no one had. And Katrina had happened and we lost everything that was any kind of letters, photographs, if there were journals... I don't know. Um, Also, her husband was the, um, my great grandfather was the editor of one of the major newspapers in New Orleans. Like he was friends with Thomas Edison. He was a major, you know, he's like, New Orleans was one of the major cities of the United States at the turn of the 20th century and definitely the major city of the South. So all of any paraphernalia, any historical stuff we had with the family was lost. And Katrina took out the house that they raised their kids in and had been in the family for years in Bay St. Louis. So I was trying to capture what I could and I met new family members. And then I was telling someone about it and they wanted me to develop into a TV show. So that's how I really started the deeper dive and really found out some interesting stuff about my great grandmother and the women that she teamed up with to really, you know, push women forward in New Orleans, as well as medicine for women and for the poor. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to hear the full story. Okay. So what, first of all, what's her name? Edith Lober. And of course, when she got married, it's Edith Lober Ballard. She was born in New Orleans, August 8th, 1875. Her father was uh, Frederick Lober, who was the chief of surgery of Turo Hospital that is still in New Orleans. And he was the chief of surgery there for 
31 years. He was also instrumental in moving the hospital from the river to uptown so it would be safer. So we think that his influence influenced her, you know, to go be a surgeon, as well as um, there were eight children that survived. They had 10 children. One died at like six, one died in childbirth. And their house is still there in New Orleans. It's called the Lober House, and it's on Coliseum where they grew up. But all the girls in the family, there were two boys. One of them was a doctor and one of them was a lawyer. And then he became an engineer and they died in their thirties. But the girls all became professionals. This is in 1905. So also they all made their debuts and went on to become professionals at the turn of the 20th century. Oh my gosh. So she's one of eight siblings. She's the eldest girl. And in 1898, she made her debut in New Orleans and she got a teaching degree from Louisiana State Normal School in Nacogdoches. And then she ended up going to Cornell Medical School in 1901. She was one of the first classes at Cornell for women in medical school. I was just going to say, not many women went to medical school then, right? This is another interesting thing about this whole thing. They weren't allowed to go to school in the South. No medical school would admit women. So she tried or she just or she just knew it wouldn't happen. It was just a thing, right? So they all the women who were like in New Orleans who ended up that she ended up meeting and and they all founded this hospital that I'll get into. um, They all went to school in the North. There was a women's hospital in Philadelphia and there is MIT, I think, had one or there was a Massachusetts one, the New England school. So, but what happened was there's a letter. I do have a letter from her describing a bit of her trajectory. Thank goodness we have this. It gives us so much information. It's only two pages that she wrote in 1933. (laughs) Yeah. But um, what happened, so these two activists in New Orleans, their names are Kate and Jean Gordon. They were two sisters that were philanthropists and activists, wrote to her. She was going to go work at what's called the New England Hospital for Women and Children. Elizabeth Blackwell had started that. She was the first woman doctor in America. And so the women in New Orleans, there were all these women, there were seven other women who had all gone to school in the North, had gone back to New Orleans, back home to practice, and no one would hire them. This is 1905. So they were all volunteering. Edith is still in school. She's finishing school. She's about to go work at the New England Hospital. And these other women have all met while volunteering at what's called the Kingsley House, you know, helping poor women and children. So they Mm -hmm. decided to open their own dispensary. They called it the New Orleans Dispensary for Women and Children. Dispensary. Wait, today dispensary is like... That's where you get your weed. Wait, is it a type of hospital or is it like a like a clinic? Is it like their version of a minute clinic? It's like a clinic. They couldn't be called a hospital because a hospital had different criteria and one of them was being able to perform surgery. Mm, but okay. they could be called a dispensary and give basic health care to people. So they they were going to open their own dispensary for women and children, and it was going to be completely free for people. And they would also help men if the men were in an emergency situation or couldn't afford help elsewhere. And if you Mm. could pay, they would take donations. And so these two activists wrote to Edith and said, will you please come help us with this, with this clinic and help us with women's suffrage? So she went, I think she got there at the end of the summer. I want to say like September. And what was interesting is in some of the articles, it said that she made her internship at Bellevue and that she got her residency up there. And I called Bellevue. No one, I don't think she ever did an official internship or residency. I just think she got down to New Orleans. There was such a need for them to be practicing. And she got her medical boards in December. 
from there and just like did her own internship (laughs) and residency there. So she and these seven other women, one of them was a dentist, um, started the New Orleans Dispensary for Women and Children. It opened on June 1st, 1905. I also read this account where they were going around because people were kind of scared because they'd never had women doctors, but also the immigrants women immigrants were scared to go to men. That was a problem in women's health at the time. Yeah. So they went they went to the Irish Channel, which was the main area for immigrants and the poor, and were knocking on doors explaining who they were and that they'd opened this clinic. And so <laughs> they started getting so many patients. They had served, I believe, over 3,000 people by the end of the first year. And so they needed a bigger building. So wait a second. So you said that they're not really charging for their services. So how how did they, how, I mean, it, it is expensive to like. So they got donations and, you know, these were women of means, right? Their families mm. had means because they had to be sent to the North to go to school. I don't know if all the women that should, but, you know, Edith and her sisters were debutantes, <laughs> you know, it's like high society, right? Who kind of eschewed that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So that's why it was kind of remarkable. And I didn't mention this yet, but her younger sister, Florence was one of the first women attorneys in Louisiana. She did graduate from Tulane. She was like the second uh, woman to graduate from Tulane. So she was involved in helping the clinic. So at the beginning, their families kind of supported. It was like all donation based, basically. It doesn't say exactly. They might have drawn a small salary from the donations. There is one account where it says Edith outfitted the operating room that they ended up getting when they upgraded the building herself Mm. with her own money. And then, you know, the you know what's so beautiful is the neighborhood pitched in. So they would go get firewood, like dock workers would pull get wood for them when there was hurricanes and stuff and storms to keep it running, to keep the lights on. And then the society would would donate. And also it was interesting, the women of the dispensary, their whole goal, and I'll read you what their creed was, they were determined to serve their community irrespective of sect, creed, or color during the height of Jim Crow segregation. They started in a four-room house badly in need of repair at 924 Annunciation Street with $25, borrowed furniture, donated supplies, and eight patients. But once the women went into the Irish Channel neighborhood and explained who they were and what they were offering, by the end of their first year, they treated 3,760 patients and were moving into a bigger building. So they moved into a bigger building. One of the doctor's parents donated a building. So in 1906, there is a report that Edith, they think she was the first woman to officially operate in the South. And she performed an appendectomy on a little girl. And one newspaper account said she was an African-American. Oh, What's interesting in my research. So I started doing research on the hospital. So the hospital went from, um, you know, being this dispensary, then they got a second building and then they outgrew that as well. When I was researching the story, I was going to fictionalize it. I reached out to an academic who specialized in um, African-American medical health in New Orleans. Mm. And I said, would they have, you know, treated African-Americans in this clinic? And he was like, absolutely not. There were no white run hospitals. And by the way, no one knew of this hospital. Mm-hmm. They didn't know the the origin origins of what ended up becoming what's called the Sarameo, um Hospital. 
so he'd never heard of the hospital. And he was like, there's no way a white run hospital would have helped African-Americans and except for charity hospital, which was a state run hospital that was in new Orleans. Mm. And then he did some research. He goes, Oh my gosh, they did have an African-American wing. So these women were the only white run hospital that were also helping had a whole wing for African-Americans as well. Like a separate wing? like Well, a- you know, in those days, everything was segregated. I'm assuming. I'm assuming mm-hmm. it was its own thing. There's a dissertation I found that said that. You know, they had their, their own, right. you know, side and whatever. But, but, they were, but they didn't have it where they were excluded. It was all, they were, you know, which was very progressive. Yeah. And we're talking about Louisiana, New Orleans. Exactly. So wow. also what I found out is that there were African-American doctors before this, and there was a school in New Orleans that would have allowed women to go. I have no huh. idea if the women knew that or if it just wasn't knowledge because of how segregated everyone was. I don't know. Wow. But there was a school there that would have would have trained women. They were training women, African-American women. Only two graduated at the same time. And one of them left in 1900, and um, but she was practicing down in the French Quarter in 1898, and um, and another one graduated from the school in 1904, and then she moved to where she was from, I believe, in in Louisiana and practiced there. But wow. there were other women doctors that were African American before these women, and they you could go to school at it's called it was called uh, Flint Goodrich. Huh. So that was interesting. No one knew that. No, no white people knew that. Exactly. I mean, maybe they did and they just wouldn't have done it. There were some white men that graduated from there. Interesting. Isn't it? The thing I found too about this whole research that I'll just throw in there is just like no one knew about these women, really. And the Mm. women themselves didn't leave a whole lot of records or a whole lot of personal stuff or a whole lot of, you know, Elizabeth Bass was one of the doctors that was one of the one of the eight that founded the dispensary. And she had reached out to women doctors throughout America to be like, can you send us accounts of how, of what it was like to be a pioneer, you know, what it was like when you first started, which is why I have this two page letter from Edith Lober. Otherwise mm. I wouldn't really have anything from in her voice. Yeah. Well, I imagine like, like because the people they were serving were like the poorest people that that was really just like, that wasn't some sort of celebrity work that was like... <laughs> You know, like they they were serving the poorest of the poor that doesn't get a lot of media attention, right? They weren't thinking about, how is my name going to be left? You know what I mean? They were just serving the people. And also the attitude towards women. Mm. And the women had it themselves on some level. It was very interesting for me from being from the South, right? And you put it this way, no one had mentioned this to me. No one had, since I was a little girl, went, your great-grandmother was a doctor. Like your own (laughs) family. Your own family doesn't talk about her. That's so... That's so crazy to me. Yeah. And so, and and I didn't even mention the other two, another, so I'll keep going with, with more of the timeline, the chrono- chronology. So I went, so they got the second building I mentioned, and then mm-hmm. they needed a bigger building and they wanted it to be an official hospital so they could really deliver babies. They could do operations, all the things. So they really did a big fundraiser push. Also, it was interesting. There was some bit where the parents who owned, who had donated that building didn't want them operating in it. 
it's almost like liability issues again, like that we have today. I don't know. Didn't say why, but they bought it, but then they didn't want them to use it. They donated it and then they didn't want them to operate it. They just wanted it to be a clinic. So, so Edith, I guess Edith was like, I want to operate. We need to grow. So they did a big fundraiser and this is where, so in those days, I didn't know this. There was no radio until 1920. Of course, there's no TV and all that. So the Mm -hmm. only way people got their news in those days was through newspapers. So in major cities, you had like something like six newspapers and they were morning editions and afternoon editions because, you know, the news you had to, in order to stay current, you couldn't just come out with one paper a day. So my great grandfather, Marshall Ballard, had moved down from Baltimore to run a paper for his friend that his friend had bought. And um, he was newly in town in January. This is in April of 1907. And he is the editor of what's called The Item, which was the one of the top afternoon papers. He also ended up being the first tabloid on Sundays in New Orleans. <laughs> Was our tabloids still mean what they mean today? Like, well, like, it's just like a little gossipy? bit more social, a little bit more gossipy. Exactly, it's more fun. Like the social, when you read it, it's more like so and so made their debut today and was seen on la la la. You know, so and so is vacationing and la la la. You know, um, so but they also had celebrities coming to visit New Orleans, so that was also part of it. But. um he goes to this meeting because they've invited all the major people to cover it, to put it in the news and also to raise money. So right. he sees, so Edith stands up to talk and he's like, who's the woman in the blue hat with the rose on it? She's articulate and she's pretty. And they, supposedly they had love at first sight. Hey, do you, have you seen pictures? Was she gorgeous? Yeah. She's like very handsome, I would say. Yeah. Very attractive, very, you know, different than me. She's like, She's like, was like dark, dark skin, dark eyes, sort of exotic yeah. and clearly brilliant. She also held seances, but we'll get to that later. Oh, listeners, we'll put that picture on the website too. So if you go to Broads, you should know you'll be able to see the picture of her that we're looking at right now. Together. This was her in med school and she was the secretary of her class at Cornell as well. And she was an articulate babe. <laughs> And so he said, I will donate an entire issue of the item to the dispensary. This was what's super interesting. He called it the women's edition. And literally, I have the edition. It's for women by women. So it was all women's articles and it was Uh all written by women journalists. Wow. That's unusual at the time, for sure, right? Very unusual. A lot of men wrote in upset. Of course men were upset. <laughs> yes. And it raised 14000 for the new building, $14,000, which is approximately $397,000 today. And they got a new building and Edith started the dispensary's district nurses training program. The dispensary graduated their first nurse. They had one nurse and all the other hospitals had tons. (laughs) They had one nurse and she graduated in 1911. She was in the history books too for, I just saw this online. It said New Orleans dispensary graduated its first nurse. She's also, for some reason, this woman is also considered the first nurse. It's the first nursing school graduate from nursing school, I think, in in Louisiana. Like, I think the other nurses had to go elsewhere, maybe also. Um, So anyway, so then they get the new uh, building. 
then it becomes the New Orleans dispensary and hospital for women and children. Mm, and they could do surgery finally, right? In the new building, they could do And they could stuff. do surgery finally. Exactly. So meanwhile, Florence, the sister who's the lawyer, and the Gordon sisters have started a major push. They're, they're running, they're pushing women's suffrage. They're like, we need women to get into Tulane, which is the major major university there in New Orleans. Mm. And we need the way we're going to start this is to they need we need to lobby for them to be professors. They started the major push in 1908, it says, mm. and they started they kept losing. They also were pushing for women to be admitted to the Orleans Parish Medical Society. Only men were allowed to be in it. Yet men were on their board, men doctors. Yet oh, they weren't good enough to be in the in the medical society. So they were like suing. They were like taking it to court and it was in the papers and it was a heated thing. So there are other things, you know, Edith became the president of the dispensary in 1909. She started an anti-tuberculosis clinic and league set up. She and Sarah Mayo, one of the other doctors of the dispensary, um, were the only female doctors out of 20 to be um, part of this push to help eradicate tuberculosis. Edith also went to the state legislature and fought for getting funds for their hospital. She writes, she goes, I made the plea that women were given licenses to practice, but no hospitals were open to them for clinical work. And that all the women who couldn't afford to pay for the services of women physicians were obliged to go to the hospitals where men held the clinics. Although the state had licensed women who could do the work, the committee in, at the state legislature offered to ask for a donation for the hospital in memory of my father's work at Turo. Wow. And because it was only going to be a merely a single donation, we wanted special legislation that would give us continued assistance. And she got it. She talked them into it. She said wow. the outcome was a special act and an appropriation of $6,000. This I think has been substantially increased. The last I heard of it, it was nearer to 20,000. She wrote this in 1933. Wow. So she had gone to the state and got them to give her them a yearly, it's not a donate, whatever, when the state gives you assistance, which right. they rightly deserved, right? Right, right. As a hospital, like giving, like helping, like as a public ho servant hospital. Exactly. They didn't want to give them any money. They wanted to give it as a one donation in honor of her dad, who was <laughs> dead, died in 1901. And he was, because he was a man. Oh like gosh. this is what they were coming up against. It was so interesting. They weren't bitter or anything. They just kept doing the work. You know what I mean? Yeah. They just kept doing the work. Yeah. Then Maud, their Florence and Edith's younger sister, graduates from Cornell in 1910, and she comes in as interning. One of the major goals also of the dispensary I haven't mentioned yet, and this is why they're pushing for the education at Tulane for them to have professors and students there, is that they wanted a place where women could also come train. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so Maud is one of their first interns, one of their first residences oh, and, and Maud practiced. Yeah. And she practiced as a pediatrician in New Orleans until the seventies. She lived into her nineties. Oh my gosh. So yeah. So Maud is there too. And then they had another sister who was like a debutante socialite who went broke in the, in, in depression. Her name was Corrine Dunbar. That was her married name. And, <sighs> um, she opened up her living room and made it a tea room because they were flat broke into her own liver. And it became a famous restaurateur until the eighties <laughs> when she sold it. I mean, this is like the family. It was so, so interesting. Um, oh my gosh. so anyway, also Edith founded something called the new Orleans lying in clinic, which was a place for women to rest after they had a baby. She found it with yeah. a man, 
um, doctor in 1910. So they were doing that. And she said the lying in hospital met with very severe criticism and opposition because the name offended. <laughs> it weathered the storm, but was later incorporated as an obstetrical department at Turo with a $50,000 bequest from Mrs. Henry Newman through her son, Dr. Jake Newman. The name offended men. That is so, that is such a, like a dude. <laughs> Maybe women too. I don't know. But anyway, it ended up becoming part of a Turo hospital eventually for women. I mean, it's just like, oh my they God. just didn't stop. It's incredible. So then the summer of 1910 mm-hmm. is when Edith marries Marshall Ballard. Do you know what one thing I did see? I saw in November of 1909. Remember that I was telling you there's like, they kind of printed gossip and they were like, yeah, Edith Lober spent her vacation on the East Coast. Well, she loved New York, according to my great aunt. And she had a boyfriend there and she loved Broadway, which is maybe why I love all that stuff. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, she um, went back and I'm, I, as soon as I wonder, like, is that what made Marshall Ballard go ahead and close the deal? You know what I mean? Oh, like, did she go yeah. back to the old boyfriend? She, was she playing around with moving back to the East Coast? I don't know. That is so funny. Yeah, they got married in uh in in the summer, and it said in the article at high noon. <laughs> the, the the wording of the time in the papers is so fun. So anyway, they kept to work. So this is in December. Meanwhile, as you know, all these years they've been fighting for Tulane. In the bylaws of Tulane, the guy that founded Tulane, he put this is an institution for all white people. He did mm. put white. So when she argued, she said. He said white people. He didn't say women. You know, mm. that was her first battle. And then I think she went, I don't know if she lived long enough to go and fight for, you know, all races to be admitted. But that was, you know, she she did point that out in her thing. You know, she used his words. But I thought that that was just also shows you how crazy, how far we've come, you yeah. know, as far as like people putting stuff like that in a byline of a school. So crazy. The Tulane board of the main school overrode the medical school and made them hire two women as professors. And wait, what year was that? 1911. I have the letter. Dear Edith Lober Ballard, dear doctor, I am pleased to advise you that the Tulane board has acted favorably upon the recommendation of the faculty of the medical department that you be appointed assistant in clinical obstetrics, I can't say that word very well, obstetrics, for the session of 1911 to 1912 without salary. Without salary. Respectfully yours, and I can't even read the handwriting. So she's gone down, she and Elizabeth Bass, and one of the other founders of the dispensary were invited. Elizabeth Bass did go on to teach there, as did Maud, mm. as did, I believe, Sarah Mayo. Like they all, so they broke down that barrier. Edith, it says that she was one of the first ones to teach there, and she was the, one of the first ones to get invited to teach there. And she lectured, but she did not take the position because she writes in the letter she'd had a miscarriage and oh. she didn't want to push it anymore. And so she slowed down in what all she was doing. So I read all the stuff she kept doing after she was married, right? The yeah. lying in clinic, the tuberculosis, she was doing all this stuff. And she was doing a lot of speaking. She did a lot of speaking at a lot of different colleges and to women's groups and stuff. Wow. And so um, she was pregnant. She was So she was pregnant, didn't take the job because she didn't want to miscarry. And she had my grandfather in March oh. of, of 1912. Wow. After that, she started slowing down as practicing. Um, but the hospital went on 
And um, then it became a huge hospital and they were going to, they had a big building on Jackson Avenue and there was this whole push to name it after one of the doctors that had founded it with them, Sarah Mayo. Is that the same Mayo as like the Mayo Clinic? We know that name. Right no, today? it's a different one. It's a okay. different one. She she was Louisiana. But the other thing that happened before I go into that, that happened is they kept fighting. So the minute they got the women in as professors at Tulane, the ERA, the Equal Rights for All, which was run by the Gordons, Florence Lober, the sister, you know, and they, they immediately sued Tulane to let student women in as students. Of course. They used it like you let you let them be professors, so now you have to let them as as students. That didn't happen till three years later. They let the first woman student into the medical school. Her name was Linda Coleman. She went got in in nineteen fourteen. She graduated in nineteen seventeen. And she did her internship and res- residency at the New Orleans Dispensary and Hospital for Women and Children. Gosh. Yeah. And when you read about this stuff online, it doesn't give, it doesn't say where she did it. That's so, like, they, like, omit the dispensary and everything. Yeah. So Edith went on to help the item. She was married to the editor and she was cleaning up quack advertisements. So like any kind of fake advertisements for stuff that would hurt people, she helped clean that up. That was a big thing for her. Wow. And then Edith and Marshall then moved to the Bay St. Louis house I mentioned originally where they raised their five children. She ended up having five children. And she says, I pretty much, she didn't retire. She retired professionally, Mm -hmm. but she always did volunteer around Bay St. Louis. She started the first Red Cross there in Mississippi. She also would help. um, They, at the time they had like Romanian traveling gypsies and there was Mm -hmm. a flu epidemic that broke out in their group and she put an end to it. And they get, we have this huge thing in the family, these silver urns that they gave her from Russia that are engraved. (sighs) Oh my. And you guys still have them. You didn't lose them in Katrina. We still have them in the family. One of the cut, my dad's cousins has them. She became very interested in spiritualism and held a seance, which is how I ended up finding out about her because my great aunt was saying in the Bay House, there was this big, huge table in this library they had and they would have a seance and the whole table would rise up. And my aunt was like, we always thought, and she'd let her children, she wanted her children in on And then she was like, you know, we always thought it was, you know, the electricity between our hands that would lift it up because they were all scientists and mathematicians in this family, you know, so they were a very interesting, eclectic bunch. Um, But she was also very Catholic. So (laughs) she like baptized her father on his deathbed in 1901 because he, he was agnostic and um, made him a Catholic. How funny though. I don't, you don't usually hear heavy Catholics, like being so into seances and stuff like that kind of surprises me. I know. I I don't know the reasoning and Aunt Caroline didn't know the reasoning because she was so young. I think it's because spiritualism was so popular back then. Look, apparently she was an amazing cook. She was, she could play the piano. She was a huge host. They used to host huge dinners and then she would run around. Oh, she would uh, apparently delivered hundreds of babies in Louisiana for, I mean, in, in Mississippi for the indigent. She kept delivering babies and doing appendectomies and she would still go help people as a yeah. doctor without getting paid or without, you know, she also talks about in this letter that the one letter we have that she had to fight in Bay St. Louis for them to open a clinic there for people and to quarantine and things like that when they had wow. pandemics. She was very, I mean, they, all of these women, when you research them, they never stopped unless sickness or something like that. They always were moving forward for women's rights. And of course they got also, she and Ballard, 
in the 20s and 30s, there's uh, in a book, uh, they were also helping black and white leaders, business leaders in New Orleans come together and form alliances and, and work together. But this wow. is before civil rights, right? They were they yeah. were just very progressive. So even people in my family are like, they were very liberal, you know, <laughs> which I'm proud of. But you have to be to do what they did. So the big hospital, this is what Edith writes. So it's kind of just like a personal thing. Like she was like, um, when I heard that the board of directors at the dispensary were contemplating naming the hospital the Mayo Memorial, which they ended up naming it the Sarah Mayo Hospital, which everyone knows, and it closed in like 1979. It ran out of money. Um, but it kept serving women. Um, I frankly admit, I felt very much surprised and hurt for Dr. Mayo and Dr. Otis both were very much opposed to the opening of the hospital department. So the hospital building was bought with money made from the women's edition of the item because Mrs. Otis, the mother, remember I told you the parents didn't want mm -hmm. a hospital, had mm -hmm. said she only wanted a clinic in the building she had given us to use. The money was collected for the establishment of a hospital and district nursing. It was founded as the New Orleans Hospital and Dispensary and its first appropriation give to it as such. Why now change the name? It was founded as such by all of us. Let it stand so as in all other institutions whose founders names go echoing down the ages. And so she was against them naming it after one of them when all of them had founded it together. So I thought oh. that was interesting. And, oh. and I think she had a little bit of a beef with Sarah Mayo, which I always <laughs> find the personal nuances interesting, you know? You know, um, we're attracted to the drama, Elise, you and I. Exactly. <laughs> I am. I am. And so Edith then, like, as I said, raised her five children, was a hostess to, to many from all over the world because of what her husband did. And helped, you know, her her uh, community in in uh, Mississippi quite a bit as well. And she never gave up using her medical prowess to help. And to, and she apparently kept always kept up to date with what was going on in the medical um, thing. And then she ended up um, passing away um, on December twenty third, nineteen forty eight, at age seventy three. Wow. And then he retired, I think, a couple of years later from the paper, and he died a few years after that. How did she die? Do they know? How did she die? She died of a, a colon cancer. Oh. And it was interesting. Not interesting. It's weird. Two of her sisters died the same year. Wow. That is kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've, and one of the other sisters, I forgot to say this, another sister we don't know that much about. She was the archivist for New Orleans. So all the girls in the family were professionals at a time where people, especially in the South, especially from their social background, did not have professions. So I would encourage everyone, if there's a takeaway from this, is to ask their families, who's abroad I should know in our family tree? Because I <laughs> Agreed. never asked that question. You know, and I have this amazing broad in my family. Broads, plural. Yeah. All of those women are so incredible. And that, and that, that people don't know who they are and what they did is just mind-blowing to me. Well, and you know, a lot of people had Maud as their doctor, I found. Like I found a guy who that was his his pediatrician and she continued the tradition. He said, he goes, Elise, you know, we we were um they were immigrants from Italy through through way of the Philippines and the war and all this. And he goes, We had six kids, and he goes, I don't think we ever paid uh Dr. Lober a dime. Wow. So they it's interesting, you know, it's like very philanthropic. You know, Edith also, I didn't even mention this, the Kingsley House, which is where all the other women met, they also, uh, those women, the Gordon sisters started um, a daycare for women who are working in factories. The Gordon sisters were pushing also for um, children labor laws and wow. um, health laws for, you know, there were, no, there were none. 
right? And so they, yeah. they had went children. So they they cut down hours for that. They also got health care for the factory workers, and they started a daycare for women's for women mothers who are working in these factories. And so wow. Edith was the doctor for the children. Wow. So these are the kinds of things they were doing, and you know, it's the difference in what the records left behind for women. Um, especially in the South, has been striking for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just never ceases to amaze me that that they can just be kind of written off that way. Well, you know, and, and so, yeah, so we're pulling, I want to pull, I'm pulling it together right now to like have a book so that people will be able to get all this information in one place. And also the African-American women that were there even before that no one knew about until recently. So um, there's an academic pulling together that also. So it's a super interesting, New Orleans is a, was a very dynamic uh, melting pot of its own. And also, as we know, racist and corrupt and crazy and also in its own way progressive on some level. So, yeah. uh, but yet they, they also weren't like, I wish they would have thought they were more important. I just wish that they were able to get more publicity and be recognized for all that they did. Cause well, they were in the papers, but yeah. it just didn't make it into the history books. Yeah. But the history books are, you know, written by white men is the thing. I guess. <laughs> I think, I just thought it was so interesting that academics from that area didn't really know about it either. Yeah. So well, that's sexism. That's like the root of sexism, right? Is that we have, you just don't even think about the other sex. You don't even think, you know, the men are the ones writing the books and then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we don't know much about the mother, but she must've been completely progressive to have let her daughter, she trained them in all the arts. Apparently also in this big house that they had that every Sunday they would hold dinners and there would be like different women would be, you know, the sisters would be playing music and some would be talking about science and some would be talking about math and some would be talking about the arts. Like it was kind of an open house that people would drop in on every Sunday at the Lober house. And their dad wow. would like accept like pigs and chickens for payment. He was a worker. Mm-hmm. He was all helping. Yes, he was the chief of surgery at Turo where people could pay, but he also would make house calls of people that couldn't pay. And, that, yeah. you know, he was also a charitable it was all part of the ethos, you know? Wow. So, so I think that he v- very much influenced them and influenced the brothers to also support them. Right. Wow. They had two older yeah. brothers and the girls just didn't stop with their education and, and what they could do and what they wanted to do. Wow. But um, yeah, so they, so that's, you know, they, they were very dynamic, different women for their time. For what sure. A, what an incredible family legacy, Elise. What a great what a great broad and a great set of broads that you brought us today. Yeah. And the women that she founded that thing with, they all were like just, you know, forging the way, fighting the good fight for suffrage. It's incredible. Did you, in your research, did you uncover, like, was there like a, any, like, was there a lot of like mud flinging at them and a lot of people that, who were like naysayers to what they were trying to do? You know, I didn't really see that. I mean, I saw in the edition of the paper that men were upset about that. That's what was so weird is that they had men on the board and that people donated to them. Men doctors were on their board, yet they they wouldn't let them in the the, the medical society. You know what Mm. I mean? And like, that's what I mean about being paradoxical. It's like, on one hand, they respected the women. On the other hand, don't go too far. Right? Yeah. Well, because they didn't have suffrage yet and like women couldn't, I mean, women couldn't own property or have their own bank accounts at that, you know, at that point, women still, they were still considered kind of not their own entity, right? Well, unless you weren't married, then you could. Florence fought for that. Florence fought 
for married women to be able to hang on to their own property. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Elise, for being my guest today and for sharing with us the amazing story of Edith Lober Ballard. Well, thank you so much for having me and get, letting me highlight the Ballard Broad. She's a great broad we should know. To learn more about Edith Lober Ballard, see her picture and other cool stuff that Elise dug up about her, you should visit broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page and read more about Elise Ballard. Her bio and her picture and links to her book and all of her social media is all up there. Speaking of social media, are you following Broads You Should Know yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of this podcast? If so, then you should help spread the word about us. Tell your friends, tell your family, leave us a review on your podcasting platform. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed hearing about Dr. Edith Lober Ballard, then I highly recommend you check out a couple of our other broads as well. You should look into Kadambili Ganguly, the first female doctor in India, Mary Edwards Walker, the first female U.S. war surgeon, and Dr. Paulina Luisi, the first female doctor in Uruguay. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.